0: I glory in the name, though now by slavery's minions hissed, and covered o'er with shame, it is a spell of the so Duchess anti-slavery singers, part of the Mid-Hudson anti-slavery history project performing Song of the Abolitionist. Sung to the familiar tune of "Old Lang Syne with lyrics written by Boston anti-slavery editor William Lloyd Garrison, the song appeared in Garrison's publication The Liberator on December 31st, 1841, as white and black abolitionists were reshaping the movement to not just limit the spread of slavery, but end it everywhere. Among those activists were two white women, Sarah and Angelina Grimke, members of a prominent South Carolina slaveholding family. The sisters understood the trade in souls as a sin, but they resisted a full understanding of slavery's implications for black people, some of whom were their nephews and nieces. The story of the Grimke sisters was first told in 1967 by historian Gerda Lerner. It is a foundational volume of modern women's history, coming out at a moment when progressive white women were making the turn from civil rights and anti-war activism to feminism. Lerner's argument that the Grimke sisters instinctively understood that their own desire to liberate themselves from patriarchy was linked to black freedom made a powerful impact. But that wasn't the whole story. As my guest, historian Carrie Greenidge, Mellon Assistant Professor in the Department of St- Studies in Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora at Tufts University, makes clear in her new book, The Grimkes, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family. A panoramic narrative that covers over a century of American history, the Grimkes tell a story about a family that was both white and black. It was a family that shaped American history before the Civil War and afterwards, as the nation struggled to imagine and implement racial equality. And as the white Grimkeys faded in their influence, the black Grimkeys stepped forward as leaders in politics, religion, and the arts. You're listening to Why Now? Where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is episode two of Why Now? The First Family of Abolition, Carrie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I just want to start by saying how much I enjoyed the book. And I want to ask you about why you chose this topic. There's a lot out there on the Grim Case already, um, but you felt a new book was in order. Why? I really had been somebody who I did
1: a lot of work in public history as a younger person, and the Grimke sisters were names that kept coming up when you're talking about abolitionist history in the United States. And so I was, they were kind of peripherally in my background through college and through, through graduate school. Um, and I realized that they were never talked about in conjunction with their very famous nephews, um, uh, Archibald Henry Grimke and Francis James Grimke, um, who were leaders of the African-American community in the postbellum era. And even though kind of the sense was that historians knew they were related, a lot of the stories didn't link the stories together of the, of the two uh, families. Um, and I really wanted to explore what it meant for the Grimke brothers, the Black descendants to be Grimkeys, as well as the relationship between the very famous Grimke sisters, Angelina uh, Grimke-Weld and her sister, Sarah Grimke, their relationship to um, their Black nephews and what that looked like. And furthermore, kind of what it would say about race and gender and class in this era.
0: So Angelina and Sarah Grimke were the subject of a book by Gerda Lerner, which is really one of the first big books in women's history. And um, your book serves as a pretty big corrective to that Mm -hmm. first volume. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw and what the interventions needed to be?
1: Well, Gerda Lerner's book, first of all, I always, I always want to preface this by saying Gerda Lerner was one of the people I read as a high school student, and it was one of the books that um, brought me into history and really wanting to look at history um, through different lenses. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to correct, not even correct, but sort of question about that narrative is, what does it mean when we have this idea that white women abolitionists Um, were somehow absolved of the racial and class dynamics of their time simply by being abolitionists, right? What did it mean that these white women who came from a family of slaveholders, um, you know, left the South, became anti-slavery activists, and had these nephews, it turns out, who were um, produced by their brother and an enslaved Black woman? And um, what did that actually mean for them? Right, and then what did it mean for their activism? And not only that, what can that tell us about the dynamics of race and class within an interracial movement for justice, like the abolitionist movement? Right, it is probably far more complex than we would initially think of in the when in the 50s and 60s when Garrett Lerner was writing, which was that you know the abolitionists were freedom fighters and they were fighting for good, which they were. <laughs> um, but what does it mean if we have a more complex view of um, the complications that can come from that that impetus
0: well, and and you're very politely saying a more complex view. Angelina and Sarah were racists. Um, yes. and we might want to talk about what we mean by that term, but I think one of the things your your book shows, is that they knew things about their family that they were unwilling to confront and they understood the violence that was happening to the people who were enslaved um, by their family and they did very little about it they they really almost failed to make it part of their consciousness
1: Yes, indeed. So one of the things I found in my research and um going into the Grimke Weld family Papers at the University of Michigan, one of the things that surprised me was how um blatant it was. That the Grimke sisters were building their career in the 1830s and having all these questions, moral questions, political and philosophical questions about slavery and came on the side of anti-slavery and wrote these brilliant, beautifully written treatises on why slavery was wrong. And yet they had these views of African-American people that really, as you were saying, um didn't allow them or they, they didn't look at their own lives or examine their own lives in relationship to their family's slaveholding. And not only that, they had these very complicated views of black people who once they were free, right? Um, the idea that black people as enslaved people and as subjects, um, and as kind of this abstract notion of freedom were um, people that they wanted to uh, free, right? But when you actually talked about actual black people who had opinions of their own, who might not agree about the ways that the Grimke sisters approached abolition, say, in Philadelphia. They had a very hard time um, reconciling that with their view of Black people in general. Um, And I really want to explore in the book what that then what is the legacy of that, right? Um, That you have people who, by all intents and purposes, are anti-slavery, right? They were anti-slavery. They're being uh, pelted with rocks as they're protesting for women's rights and for an end to slavery in the 1830s. And yet they continued to have these views of African-American people as being subservient, as ignoring kind of the very real realities of the legacies of slavery, both in Philadelphia and in Charleston, and really ignoring their own family, even though they saw... All this violent, pretty, pretty horrendously close up as um, as young women.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that you make very clear, and I think the writing is so wonderful because you don't over dramatize it; you just present the facts. Um, is that their father and their brother were almost psychotically violent, and yes. and seemed to enjoy um, doing violence um, to enslaved people over and above the kinds of punishment. That were commonly used to discipline black people, and and one um, one character you talk about is a young man who was raised to be a house servant. Um, tell us a little bit about him and what their brother did to him. So there's um, the the Grimke family
1: were very very um, <laughs> um, prolific slaveholders, if you can use that term, even for the time period. So they were like in the top one percent of wealthy. White Southerners who owned slaves at the top of the society in Charleston. And one of the people that they enslaved was a man named Stephen, um, who was employed in the Grimke household in Charleston from the time he was a little boy. And he was. Going to be trained to be a a house servant or a butler in the household, and he's raised alongside Angelina and Sarah Grimke's brother, um, Henry F. Grimke, um, who's around the same age, and they never say his age, so it was it was hard to sort of come up with how sort of his how his age compared to Henry's, and all of the narratives of Henry F. Grimke were that he was. Um, a bully he was tremendously violent and that he took a lot of that violence out on the people who were waiting on the household, particularly this boy Stephen, who was around his same age um ba- banging his head against doors um making um sort of forcing him to do these uh, uh extraneous tasks and then laughing at him and beating him and tripping him when he didn't keep up with the tax just the sur- the surrendous play of power and violence over this uh, man named C- Stephen so much so that by the time Stephen was an adult um he suffered from fits, um, as they called them in the 19th century. Uh, There's speculation that these were seizures brought on um, by the uh, damage to his skull and his head by Henry F. Grimke. And eventually in the 1830s, um, Stephen became, in the words of the slaveholders, unmanageable, right? They couldn't get him to work. And so in the 1830s, the Grimke family was trying to figure out what to do with him. Should they send him to another family? Um, Should he be, um, where should he go? And actually the Grimke sisters, at this point in the late 1830s, when Stephen was an adult by this point, um, they were asked by their sister, Mary Grimke, if they could possibly take Stephen, right? And so the Grimke sisters um, spend about a year negotiating with their mother and their sisters on what to do with Stephen and this other slave named uh, Betsy Dawson. They eventually brought Stephen to New Jersey, where he was eventually freed. But at that point, Stephen, of course, was a middle-aged man, Um, suffered all this trauma to his body and to his um, head. And the Grimke sisters, um, while uh, providing for him, so they provided him a lot of land on the land they own in New Jersey while providing for Stephen, were also very um, callous towards where that his injuries came from, right? So you kind of had to, as a historian, keep on reading through the letters and see how it is they're talking about Stephen's injuries, right? So they're talking about it as if this just suddenly happened. Right. Um, we don't know why Stephen is the way he is. But then if you go into the you know, a 20, 25 year of, of, of letters, you get kind of this narrative that Stephen was the way he was because of the horrendous abuse he suffered at the hands of their brother that was um, everyone in the neighborhood and in the household saw uh, quite frequently occur.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you read the accounts of what what happened to Stephen and the outcome of it. And it's actually quite clear that he probably had something that today we would call CTE, yes. um, a, a kind of um, endemic brain damage that affected the functioning of his body. And um, so there's that kind of violence. Um, and, and I think we want to emphasize for our readers that um the the extreme violence that we see in parts of the book is really part of a continuum of violence that the whole institution of slavery was violent and yes. there were extremes um, and then there were lesser forms of violence, but it was all violent. Yes. Um, and, and I want to um, introduce another character who is the object of a different kind of violence from Henry, which is Nancy Weston, who, yes. who I think is one of the most interesting characters in the book. Can you, can you tell our listeners about Nancy? So Nancy Weston was enslaved to the Grimkeys.
1: Um, she was the mother of Archibald Henry Grimke, Francis James Grimke, and John F. Grimke, who were the um, biracial um, sons of Henry F. Grimke. So Henry F. Grimke was a notoriously violent um brother of the Grimke white Grimke sisters. And Nancy Weston, from what I've been able to parse out of her history, um, was born to another enslaved group of people in Charleston called the Weston family. And that family was enslaved to a family of Plowden Weston, who was another one of the other sort of elite slaveholders in Charleston. And some of those enslaved people ended up gaining their freedom in the 1820s. And another group of them, and Nancy Weston was in this other group, remained enslaved or in bondage or unfree in some way in Charleston. And so Nancy Weston, um, there's evidence um, that I uncovered that she was sold with her child um, before she went moved into the Grimke household. Um, We don't know what became of that child or the brother she was sold with, but she ended up in working in the Grimke household and very quickly was hired as a nurse by Henry Grimke for his own two children. And from there um, entered into a coercive sexual relationship with Henry F. Grimke. In the book, I was very careful um, how to term this relationship because Nancy herself, um, when She was asked by her sons, was always talking about um, the fact that they came from this wonderful family of Westons, right? And of Grimke. She was constantly telling them that they came from sort of Southern, good Southern blood and Southern royalty. Um, And so I really wanted to respect that in terms of her as a character and as a person, how she viewed um, and managed to sort of um, talk about her experiences. And yet, there is a lot of evidence that that sexual relationship did not begin with consent, right? (laughs) Um, which is very much, um, um, different than what historians have kind of taken to be true, which is that Henry Grimke fell in love with this enslaved woman, had children with her, and, um, he was actually a kind master. Um, and actually the evidence is that, um, he um, had no intentions of anything except for Nancy to be, um, um, an enslaved woman on his plantation, who he could have access to, um, as a slaveholder.
0: Yeah, and and it of course would be very difficult to believe that Henry, who on the one hand is beating Stephen within an inch of his life, is also a kind lover um, yes. to an African American woman. So yes. so you're describing a very practical relationship, which of course we are familiar with um, from the story of Thomas Jefferson, that has been so well documented by. Annette Gordon-Reed. And that was really quite common. Um, But when looking at Nancy, she doesn't raise her children to be enslaved. She is looking at a future beyond slavery. And talk to us a little bit about how she raised those young men. So she raises
1: her three boys. And every time I think about it, I think she had three young boys under the age of three by eight within a within a three year period. So her, her sons are, you know, roughly a year apart. Um, and so she has these boys, Henry F. Grimke passed, uh, died in 1852. He did not free Nancy or the boys. He basically said that they belonged to his white sons. So the young black enslaved boys, older half brother and Nancy Weston, um, for a few years moved into a, uh, cottage in Charleston, um, where she had a lot of contact with her relatives who were the free Weston. So these are the people who were freed by Plowden Weston, um, and they were Nancy Weston's relatives. And so she lives in this house, and she um, became a laundress. So she did all of this laundry for white people in the neighborhood and for the local hotels and she used whatever little money she could scrape together to get them educated in the one school and the one church that would um, educate black children. And she also was very adamant, they grew up to be young Southern gentlemen. So she taught them this this very, um, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, ostentatious bow um, that the boys talk about or the young men talk about when they became older, which is that she spent sort of nights reading them the Bible and teaching them how to do this bow when they met people um, mm-hmm. and telling them that they came from this royal sort of lineage. Um, mm-hmm. And not just that, but they came from um these black westons. She called them colored Westons, who were um members of the free black community in Charleston, who were some of the leading um Um, craftspeople and uh, property holders within that free Black community. And so the boys really, until the Civil War, grew up knowing they were enslaved, but really having this idea that their enslavement was different, right, Mm -hmm. and that um, eventually um, their lives would be different than they were. And so the most powerful thing, I think, about Nancy Weston is raising children Um, to have that understanding, right? And to survive as a form of survival. And then the question of the book is, well, what does that then mean once slavery ends, right? (laughs) You've Mm -hmm. raised three very accomplished, intelligent young men to believe that they are somehow different than, say, um, the average black person who was
0: enslaved. What does that then do to how they look at themselves in the world? Well, and I want to come back to that point because it's so important to the second half of the book. But it also matters during their period of enslavement as well, because during that moment when Nancy Weston's life is kind of in limbo and she's working as a laundress. And I think here you make such an important point about the different kinds of unfreedom that existed in Charleston for Black people. Um, But Nancy Weston um, is basically abandoned by the family For a period of time and expected to support herself and take care of herself and these children. Um, And then one of the sons sweeps back in and says, "Okay, I need those young men and they're going to come and serve me now. And don't forget, you are enslaved. Um, What happens then? So the the son of Henry Grimke, the the um the
1: white son, so the white half brother of, of the Grimke brothers, um, returned from New York. Um, he was a, a character, Montague Grimke, who. Um, had all of these plans to become sort of this this noble Southern man. So he went to New York for a while. He tried to become a druggist. Um, He then um, tried to become a doctor. He gets married. The first wife dies. He had two children. Um, And he finally returned to Charleston just as the Civil War was about to begin. And Montague Grimke, Henry F. Grimke's son, became a rabid secessionist. Even um, uh, Charleston is sort of the hotbed of the secessionist movement. He's sort of a... a, uh, falls into that line um, uh, pretty deeply um, even for the city and when he returned to Charleston in the early 1860s he basically swooped into Nancy Weston's life and wanted to um, show his younger half- siblings um, that they were enslaved and so he demanded that Henry Grim- uh, excuse me Archibald Grimke and Frank Grimke um, serve him in his house um, and Archibald Grimke, who was, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old at the time, completely refuses, right? He's uh, told that he has to serve this household, and so he pretended to be dumb. He he couldn't hear what they were saying and refused to um, work. And so Montague Grimke then unleashes this torrent of violence on the two um, Grimke brothers. Um, At one point, uh, Archibald Grimke, to escape the violence, dressed as a girl and hid in in his relatives' homes um, to hide from his uh, half-brother. Frank Grimke, who was uh, a year younger than his older brother, so he's around... Twelve, eleven, um, was also forced into enslavement, but again managed to kept keep on running away and hiding. Eventually, um, Montague Grimké put his youngest, uh, uh, youngest, um, uh, half brother into the notorious Charleston jail, which was a horrendously, um, violent, um. Uh, mode and mechanism of control by slaveholding people across the South. And he puts the 12 year old in there where he is systematically abused um, and tortured. And um, when the young boy still won't behave, quote unquote, he um, sells him to a Confederate, um, to the Confederate army. So Montague Grimke is one of those characters that, um, when we're looking at the Grimke family, the white Grimke family, um, really parceling out how much they accepted violence as um, a tool and how much um, black freedom really depended on the white family's needs, right? So Montague decides he needed to assert his power as a slaveholder, And so then he re-enslaves, quote unquote, Nancy and her sons um, and wants to sort of become this, this Southern gentleman.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really an astonishing story. And meanwhile, um, Angelina and Sarah are up north, traveling in abolitionist circles, um, giving speeches. Angelina, in particular, becomes a very compelling speaker. And somehow they manage not to associate this violence with themselves and this kind of neglect with themselves. And I think you make a really important point that... Their abolitionist focus is in many ways on the um the effect of enslavement on white people. Yes. Can can you explain that conundrum for our listeners? Yes, yeah, so one of the things I
1: was uh, I was very compelled by was the writings and speeches of the Grimké sisters. And what is it that they're actually saying? Um and so um as I went through their speeches and went through all of their writings, one of the things I noticed was that their writings are anti-slavery, yes. They were both very much um, convinced that caste prejudice, as they called it, was an evil. And yet they had this idea that it was an evil, more so because of the effect it had on white people and kind of white morality and American morality. And they were about these effects that it had on black people and justice and human beings. Um, and that that's the way that they saw the world. They really saw their reform as a way to um, bring salvation to white people, particularly white slaveholding women. Um, and that by bringing um, sort of um, salvation to that group of women, that group of women could then bring salvation to the country and to Um, White society in general. And so it's very much a different way of, was a different way of looking at anti-slavery than saying slavery itself is wrong and exploitative and violent and black people should be free and equal. Um, They Professed that black people were human beings, right? So they they were they were beyond that, but they were definitely very much focused on the effects that slavery and racial oppression had on women like themselves, who were, um, you know, very very intelligent, very very in in, in independently minded white women who were trapped um, in this role as slaveholders with very little um, expectation on what they could do, and so they're speaking to that group of women. Um, And so what does it mean that that was their view of the world and reform and anti-slavery?
0: Yeah. And, you know, part of a recurring theme in this book is what white people know but can't acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are um, race riots, you know, violence against black people that are occurring in Philadelphia under the noses. Um, of yes. these white abolitionists, and they don't seem to be recording that this is happening. Yes, how do we account for this, Carrie?
1: You know, I think I think that it is the the you know story of how America, particularly white America, can deal with racial injustices or social injustices if it doesn't directly affect them, which is that. Um, really seeing those injustices as somehow divorced from the everyday even if as in the case of angelina and sarah grimke that injustice occurs right in your backyard so the first chapter in the book is the 1834 philadelphia um riot which basically was a moment when the white population of philadelphia turned on the black population and um one of many riots in which they basically tore apart the black community over a, a period of about four days, burning down churches, stealing people from their houses, and, you know, beating them up and killing them. And the Grimke sisters lived about three blocks from where the heart of that violence occurred. And for two women who kept such intricate diaries, right, of their life and of Philadelphia and of, you know, what the air smelled like and, you know, what the streets looked like in the different neighborhoods, they never mentioned um, any of the riots, which I found kind of strange as a historian reading what was happening in the newspapers actually in their neighborhood. And so to me, that just speaks to this dissonance that I think a lot of white America can have towards racial um, violence, which is that, Um, even if it's occurring right in their backyard, tend to ignore um, it, right? Because it doesn't affect them, right? Um, And to admit that it is occurring in your backyard is to admit that you have somehow um, created the violence that's exploding around you, right? Um, and so I was very fascinated by that aspect of the Grim Key sisters, particularly since they were sexual record keepers, right? <laughs> it would be different if they were people who never talked about the politics around them, but they were constantly reflecting on, this was happening in Boston or this is happening in Philadelphia. They were constantly talking about it and they never talked about the violence that the black community and the newspapers uh, were constantly documenting. Um in Philadelphia at the time.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to just underline for our listeners, Carrie, um, how much your familiarity with the nature of the sources affects your interpretation. Um, and I, I very much admire that, that, that you, uh, you know so deeply how meticulously they recorded the lives around them, and yet there are these yawning gaps that yes. that we have to interpret. Um, so so the Grimke sisters um, are astonished when these two young <laughs> men, after the Civil War, um, Frank and Archie, show up on your on their doorstep and say, yes. "We're your nephews." Yes. How did they not know? <laughs> well, that is
1: that is the big conundrum and, and mystery, even for me, delving into the family and the the dynamics of the family um, by the. Civil War, the Grimke sisters amazingly had kind of revised their view of their brother Henry. So they go through their life talking about Henry as being uh, drunk, as being a bully, as being violent. They're talking about this constantly. It was a source of worry for um, Angelina Grimke when she decided to leave the South and go North. Part of the reason she did that was because of the immorality she felt um, and saw in her brother's behavior. Um, And yet by the 1860s, Um, About 30 years later, the Grimke sisters have revised that, and they're starting to tell people that they have a brother, Henry, who was a slaveholder, but that he was a kind master, right, and that he had enslaved people, but the slaves would miss him when he died, and that wasn't it a shame that he had passed away. Um, And so in 1868, the Grimke sisters are reading a newspaper, and they see a name appear of two young African American boys who were at Lincoln University and the newspaper is recalling these young these young students that they're doing very well in school. And they recognize the name, they write to the to Archibald Grimke, they ask, are you related to the Grimkeys? He says yes and he basically tells their story or the story that Nancy told them. And the Grimke sisters then have this reaction where um, Angelina Grimke you know cries for days. Sarah Grimke is distraught And from that moment, they agree that they will, or they say that they are going to support the boys um, through their education, right? And that they need to just put behind them um, everything that's happened to them and that they are now being saved by the Grimke sisters. And one of the astonishing things to me um, as I was looking at the sources was looking at the relationship between Angelina Grimke, her husband, Theodore Weld, and their own children. So they had three children. And there was definitely a sense of disappointment <laughs> with their own children. Um, Angelina and Theodore Weld had three children, two sons and a daughter. The oldest son, Charles Stuart Weld, um, attended Harvard, but during the Civil War became um, an abstainer from any kind of participation in the Civil War. They had another son named Theodore called Sody, who for all intents and purposes had severe um, mental health issues, we'll call them now. Um, And they had a daughter um, uh, named Sissy, who they called Sissy, who um, was the girl in the family, was extremely smart, probably, I would say, you know, more accomplished than her brothers. And yet she's the girl in the family. And for Angelina and Sarah Grimke, um, they were very concerned that these three children um, didn't live up to kind of this Grimke um, lore. And so by the time the Grimke brothers, the black Grimke brothers come along, there was definitely a notion, and, and Angelina says this in many letters, that these black Grimkeys are going to be the savior of the Grimke name, right? They're going to bring um, glory to a name that has now been, um, you know, damaged by slavery and uh, secession and the Civil War. And they're going to bring um in a way, glory to a name that has been damaged by the fact that you have three Grimke children who um, the parents believe didn't become remarkable kind of citizens of
0: the world. Mm-hmm. So I- I'm not even going to ask you how you avoided using the phrase white women's tears when Angelina Grimke <laughs> was having her nervous breakdown over yes, having yes. Black nephews. Um, yes. but, um, but these Black nephews, um, the-, the Black Grimkeys. Um, are really there on the upswing, and there's an interesting moment in your book where the white grimkeys are really in decline. Um, yes. they sort of fade from public view. They they become economically um, less powerful. They they really just sort of fade as a group. But the black grimkeys are on their way up. And tell us what happened specifically to Archie and Frank. John sort of moves out of the limelight. But Archie and Frank become very famous. How? Yes, so Archie Archibald
1: Henry Grimke and Frank Grimke, after they met their white aunts, the aunts did agree to pay for their education at Lincoln University at an all-Black college in Pennsylvania. And from there, the two Grimke sisters um, had all these debates about where the boys should go from there. And Archibald Grimke um, eventually went on to Harvard Law School um, Frank Grimke eventually went on to Princeton um, Theological Seminary, where he got his degree. And so by the 1880s, both of them are considered rising stars in this uh, group of kind of the, the developing bl- Black elite after the Civil War. Archibald Grimke eventually moved to Boston, where he ran his own law firm. He becomes very involved in local uh politics becomes a leader in the black political independence movement and eventually was appointed head of the Massachusetts State Hospital um, for uh, mental illness um, and eventually was then appointed um, to become ambassador to uh, the Dominican Republic um, Frank Grimke eventually became pastor of the uh, Presbyterian Church in Washington DC which was the most prestigious black church in um, If not the country, definitely in the region. So the 15th Street Presbyterian Church um, boasted um, black senators and congresspeople and um, artists and all the leading families of kind of this black elite. And so Frank was their pastor and also kind of their theologian. So he comes out with all of these writings on Presbyterian um, living and life and sort of um, boosts the um, the morale of the black um, um, upper class during the 1880s and 1890s. So by the 1880s, um, after Angelina and um, Sarah Grimke died, the Grimke name that most people in the North knew was the name of the Grimke brothers, right? Because the Grimke brothers, the black brothers, Archibald was a, a very famous, you know, um, political actor. And Frank Grimke was very much known as this minister, um, as uh, one magazine said, the pulse of Negro America, right? He's kind of like the the voice, uh, supposedly, of Black America. Um, and so by the early 1900s, the Grimke brothers, uh, Archibald Grimke helped found the NAACP. He was the head of the NAACP branch in Washington, D.C. Frank Grimke helped steer... Washington, D.C.'s community through the founding of various schools, including the Dunbar High School. And so they're really kind of on the um, on the up and up. Right. Whereas the white Grimkes, um were in decline, just to say the least, after the Civil War. Of course, they lost all of their fortune, um, given um, the end of the Civil War and the fact that most of their money was in
0: slaves. Um, well, and let's and- just say it. They were awful people.
1: I mean, yeah, well, yes, awful yes.
0: people, and with very few talents.
1: <laughs> yes, with a few with few talents, right? And and I think this speaks to what we think of when we think of slaveholding culture. And when I'm reading, I sort of owe a lot to people who studied the South and slaveholding in the American South in particular, is that it was not often conducive to raising younger people who became um able to function. <laughs> Once slavery ended, right, mm-hmm. and so I think that's one of the things I wanted to kind of have as an undercurrent in the book, um, which is that you know the 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 founder of the Grimké clan raises you know he has like thirteen children, and except for the Grimké sisters and two of his sons, both of who became um, sort of theorists um, in the 1830s, those children ended up you know having sort of all of these problems with their own families, um, running out of money and drinking themselves, right, and so. What then does is that legacy, right? That you you're right. you're raising this generation of white people to be white supremacists, violent people, and yet. Um, there's nothing. There's no accomplishment there, right? Um, by the time you get to the 1850s and 1860s, um, whereas the Black Grimkeys um, have
0: sort of all these accomplishments by the end of the century. Yeah, and and they're strivers, and they they know they have to work hard. They know they have to be, um, as as the phrase goes, best men and best yes. women, um, in order to make their way in what is still a very racist country, a yes. country that is. Uh, given to white political violence against newly freed Black people or not so newly freed Black people. Yes. Um, but their striving also has consequences for their worldview yes. and for the yes. politics they espouse. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that that uh, that was fascinating to me is reading all of Angelina and Sarah Grimke's writings and letters and then seeing how some of what they were saying reflected in the later writings of Archibald and Frank Grimke. So Archibald and Frank became leaders in this black elite, very accomplished men, very well-read men, um, yet they had these views of black people that carried over from their childhood, I would argue, in Charleston, which is as a means of survival. Nancy Weston taught them that they were different, right? Right that their lives were not going to be enslaved for long, that they were destined for graceness. Um, and that's a great way to instill in a person a way to strive and achieve. But then my question was, what kind of person in terms of civil rights and blackness does that person then become, right? Particularly at this time period where the argument for many African-Americans and, and white Americans as well was that, you know, um, Black people would get the rights they deserved if only they did such and such, right? So if only they would, you know, comport themselves, if only they would do this. And what happens when someone like an Archie and Frank believes that to be true, right? Mm -hmm. And so how does that then affect their communities and the way they interact with them? And so one of the things, for instance, Archibald, when he became the uh, consul, which we now call the ambassador to the Dominican Republic, he... Has no qualms about talking about the Dominican people in very similar terms as white people were talking about enslaved people, right? So he has all these terms that he uses for the Dominican people, some of which I put in kind of the footnotes in the book and don't go into as much. Um, but he has all these terms for them. He's very much completely oblivious to the fact that they're living through this kind of civil political unrest. Um, completely oblivious to the fact that American companies were going in and founding these sugar estates and dispossessing and violently treating Dominican peasants. And he's seeing that around him, right? And yet he has no response, right? His response is that this position as consul or as as ambassador is good for the race because it's a sign that he, and therefore the race has arrived, right? Um, and he really had no, you know, he had no, throughout his life, he had no sort of questioning of that. Um, for somebody who was so committed to civil rights, as he would call them, he sort of saw no conflict. Uh, similarly, his brother, Frank Grimking is the pastor of this church in D.C., and for all, by all accounts, ran that church, um, underneath what somebody called um, the thumb of respectability, right? So, um, members of the church had to comport to certain um, ways of dressing, of talking, their children had to go to certain schools. Um, there's evidence that he, in later years, um, you know, frowned upon black people of darker skin tones being members of the church. And yet he would see nothing wrong with that. He would say that it was, Frank Grimke would say that he was merely uplifting the race, right? He was making sure that Black people in D.C. Um, sort of realized their worth. Um, and so really with the book, I really tried to look at, well, well, how the consequences of that, number one, and number two, how kind of heartbreaking that is, that that is sort of where the Grimke brothers ended up by the early 20th century, is that they definitely became two members of kind of this, uh, the, the, by the Harlem Renaissance, younger Harlem people would call them kind of old guard Negro leaders, right? Very much into respectability. You didn't talk about your past. Um, Lighter skinned people were um, better or more fortunate. Um, you had to go to the best schools. You had to go to the, all these all these ideas of respectability.
0: Well, and in a plot twist that is worthy of dynasty, (coughs) Archie Grimke um, is so confident about his place in society that he falls in love with and marries a white woman. Yes. Um, And Angelina Weld Grimke is born into these twin dynasties of white abolition and black um, superiority in freedom. Um, and, you know, really the hopes of the Grimke family are invested in her. Yes. Now, before you tell our readers a little bit more about Angelina Weld Grimke, um, who becomes a very famous poet, um, you really bookend the, the entire volume with her story. Um, I want to know, am I the only person alive who did not know she was a lover of women? <laughs> no, I think I well. This is was very
1: fascinating to me. Is that, um, I had you know going and and doing, being very interested in black literature and reading her stuff and reading criticism surrounding her, uh, literary critics. People had always um mentioned that she had quote unquote relationships with women, <laughs> but um there had been sort of that wasn't as talked about um. Um, kind of in the mainstream people who were teaching about uh, Angelina Grimke. Uh, I think more recently, it's kind of come out that that's the case. Uh, Many historians, when I was reading uh, works, were hesitant to talk about this because they said, well, she had a relationship with a man or wanted a relationship with a man, and we don't know if she ever actually acted on these relationships. One of the things that's fascinating to me is when I was going in the archive, seeing all of these letters and poems that she's writing to women, multiple women over multiple, you know, years, a very intimate talking about their bodies and, you know, all these types of things. And from a very early age and Angelina Weld Grimke, not really seeing anything wrong with that until the reaction of her, of her father and her aunt and uncle.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and then really becoming, Um, somebody who realized that she had to sort of
0: suppress that in a way. Yeah. And, and she sort of refuses to be disciplined by other people, which I, which I think is a very important theme of the book. Um, So, so tell our listeners a little bit more about Angelina Weld Grimke, who is really sort of the culmination um, of this book. She is the person who comes out of all of these relationships.
1: Yes. So Angelina Weld Grimke, who is fascinating to me, if there's one thing I hope for this book is for somebody uh, or it open up all of the wealth of, sort of avenues you can take exploring these lives. So Angelina Weld Grimke was the daughter of Archibald Grimke, which means that she's the grandniece of the Grimke sisters. She was born in 1880. Her father, Archibald Grimke, married, as you said before, Sarah Stanley, who was a white woman, um, daughter of a minister, um, a reformer. Um, they're in an interracial marriage. Um, they have Angelina Weld-Grimke, um, she's named for these, these aunts, um, and when Angelina Weld-Grimke was about two years old, her white mother, Sarah Stanley, suddenly decided to go back to her family in Michigan. So the, the Sarah Stanley's family had disowned her for marrying Archibald, told her that they would never speak to her again. She suddenly decided when her daughter was two years old to move to Michigan, Um, And eventually ended up staying there for five years, raising Angelina Weld Grimke in this very white environment, away from her black father, whose career was sort of taking off in Boston. And then one day decided to put Angelina on a train and send her back to Boston to live with her father. So Angelina Weld Grimke arrived back to live with her black father in this world that was um, rooted in black politics in New England, but also very much surrounded by her white family. So Theodore Weld was still alive. He's very old. Um, the, the, um, the Weld family sort of, um, gathers around to kind of nurture this little girl. And from the very beginning, one of the fascinating things or more heartbreaking things was the way that, um, the family talked about Angelina as a child, which was that she was undisciplined and she was out of control and she asked too many questions and she's, she can't be disciplined. And really this obsession with this discipline, um, Whereas if you peel back what this little girl was actually doing is she's actually not doing (laughs) anything that's particularly out of character developmentally. Right. Um, And yet everything she did as a little girl was considered problematic um, or um, a threat to some idea of normalcy or propriety. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time she was in uh, high school Archie goes to take his job in the Dominican Republic. She was sent to live with her uncle Frank in Washington, D.C., which is this all-black world of, you know, cotillions and (laughs) all these type of things. And she arrived there, and she only lasted about a semester at the local high school when something happened. Now, it's never said what happens. Um, Her aunt Charlotte Fortin Grimke alludes to the fact that she has, quote-unquote, inappropriate attachments to women, um, there's evidence that she was writing love letters and cavorting with a young black girl who remained a lifelong friend of hers, Mary Burrill. And so she was sent away to a school in Michigan, Carrollton, now Carrollton College. She goes there, she ends up having relationships with women there, um, ends up being kicked out or asked to leave, ends up then at various private schools in New England before she eventually enters um, the Boston School of Gymnastics, which is a predecessor to Wellesley College. Um, so very, very well educated, but the The kind of rumor surrounding her and ideas surrounding her is that she's somehow unruly, right? That's kind of other people's take on her. My take on her was that she was somebody who um, loved women and was very repressed by the world in which she lived and um didn't have a lot of interests in partaking of this kind of black society into which she was born. Mm-hmm. And not only that, being very curious about where her family came from and recognizing very early that the story she was told, which was very limited, she was kind of just told that her her father and uncle had somehow survived slavery, life was good for them now, you know, and so just, you know, buckle up and behave type of thing. Being very concerned from a very young age, well, what's actually the real story? And nobody telling her. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Meeting, for instance, Nancy Weston, who's her grandmother, who by this point is old and living in D.C. And why was it that Nancy Weston couldn't read? <laughs> right. Um, which would be a, a, a big question. Right. If, if, if she was born enslaved but came from this loving family. Right, why wasn't why didn't she ever learn how to read? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody telling her um, why. And so Angelina Weld Grimke becomes a prolific, prolific writer and poet. She writes and publishes her first poems at 12. Um, By the time she's in her late teens, she's writing sort of all of these verses. And one of the fascinating things is that she's really like a a predecessor to, uh, you know, E.E. Cummings, that style of poetry, which is, you know, very kind of abstract, doesn't often rhyme. It's all kind of these little snippets of life. She talks a lot about her love for women <laughs> and particular women, but she also talks about, you know, uh, death and all of these things. And so she's very, very prolific in writing um, and becomes kind of a favorite within kind of literary circles um, and eventually got a job teaching school in Washington, D.C. and living with her father and her uncle. Um, but I really wanted to bookend her as the Vimke family story because I really see her as kind of the promises and then failures of this class, right? She's extremely talented, extremely bright, um, extremely prolific, and yet she herself had these views of blackness and her own blackness um, that were um, placed in her, I would argue, by her family and her environment. Um, she would be would talk very disparagingly, for instance, about women and of darker skin. Um, at one point, she does fall in love, did fall in love with a man. She was prepared to sort of marry him or at least court him or be courted by him. And he uh, is, her father says he's too dark. And so she eventually says, okay, and, and never pursues that relationship. So I really see her as the promise of this class, you know, supreme talent, advantages, and yet the perils of this class, which is that, you know, she's she um, produces beautiful art, She produces the play, Rachel, and yet she has this distance from kind of uh, black folk or her own blackness that really haunted her
0: throughout her life. Yeah, and and I think that you encapsulate um, one of the big themes of this book, which is so important which is in order to tell the history of race in this country, we actually have to peel away the stories people told themselves about race, the stories that evolved over time to hide unhappier and, and more violent truths. Yes. So, so, Carrie, um, why should our listeners read this book now? I think that the story
1: offers a view, I think a lot of us right now in this political moment, social moment, cultural moment, are struggling with um, where we go, <laughs> right? Where Where is the world going? And not only that, if you're somebody who was raised um, in kind of the post-civil rights, women's rights, gay rights era, and we're kind of in this different era that's not that, um, what are the Possibilities of this era, particularly since often we're told in 2022 that you know um, all that needs to happen still is that you you get a good job, you major in the right thing in college, you make some money, and life and all of these horrible things will kind of be pushed to the back burner. And so I think why was this story now? I think it speaks to our current moment in a very personal way, in that I think particularly for a lot of Black families who have so-called made it right. You know, you have kids. You're not, you know, struggling financially. You're doing relatively okay. What, but what does that actually mean, right? And what are the possibilities and potential perils in that in this moment, right? Um, what does it mean that you know um, we know that for African Americans, there was a famous story done by the New York Times a couple of years ago that, like, even a black person with a college degree. Um, is often less likely to be hired than a white person with no degree, right? Um, What does it mean and what does success mean? And then what does it mean, that success mean in a context where we're telling ourselves certain stories about the past um, that weren't necessarily true, right? And so in this moment, 2022, how can we reckon with that past that's been told to us or we've been understanding it kind of in a slightly different way than it actually happened? And then how can that influence where we go from this particular moment Um, in our families, right? In our relationships with people, in our relationships with communities, um, what kind of could a future, a different future than the Grimke's future look like?
0: And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to new episodes. Leave a comment to let me know what you think or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. We're submitting Why Now to Apple iTunes and all the podcast platforms, so please share with a friend and show big tech that we're popular. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. And that's all for now. See you next time.